Let's pray. Father, thank you for the nearness that you have for us. It doesn't matter where we are, Lord. Your presence draws near to comfort and to cheer. So I'm praying now, Lord, as we open the word, that you'll open our hearts. Touch us and teach us. I pray now, Lord, that we would not be afraid of the things that are upon the earth or the tidings from the east or the west, but that our confidence in you would deepen as the days go by. This is our desire now, I pray. Send your spirit into our homes and our hearts, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I've entitled my message, Prophetic Lockdown. Most of you are probably aware that 95% of the population of the United States is under some form of shelter-in-place order. Yes, there are a few states where there are none of these orders, but when you take the actual population and the dense spots, 95% are restricted in their ability to move. This morning I want to talk with you about the fact that eventually the elements of Earth's convulsions for the last measure of civility and normalcy is going to be built around religious persecution. What was in the past is what will become in the future. Part of the reason we can have a measure of assurance that this moment with COVID is not the last moment is because there are so many things relative to what we can't see and the battle about things that don't seem to matter the same way right now have yet not yet come to the forefront. How rapidly we could move from where we are to there is nobody's guess. We do know that when deliverance is upon a woman, great with child, that the final movements can be rapid ones. And indeed, we've seen how different the world can be within a few days. In this series of sermons called Confidence in Crisis, I'm attempting to make something exceptionally clear is that the main preparation for the time of the end is a deepening confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, a deepening knowledge in His Word, and a love for the lost that will move us into positions where our faith is stretched. Sometimes discomfort is upon us, but our confidence will grow. The other thing I want to make abundantly clear in this journey of messages is that the only deliverance for God's people has always only been from God. And that will become more distinct as we press on to the end. So there's nothing wrong with some little measure of preparation on our behalf in some senses. We know that during the little time of trouble that precedes the seven last plagues, that spiritual warfare is going to break out on the face of the planet. And in the midst of all this, there will be the discussion, the rediscussion, I should say, of Sunday laws. And during that period of time, God is calling his people out of the cities Eventually, persecution will become so intense that even people in small towns and villages will look for more out-of-the-way places. Yes, a garden will be helpful in those moments and times, but even that knowledge and even that progression of removing ourselves from places of potential high-density population and thus persecution is a gift from God. But the idea of saving up a lot of money, saving up a lot of food, the idea of a house being paid for, while all of those things will have some slight measure of potential advantage. They are really not what God is calling us to. God is actually calling us to an active recommitment to the proclamation of the glorious gospel truth of the three angels' messages found in Revelation 14. So when we think about Elijah, we realize 
that food will be an issue for God's end time witness. Elijah is both a Old Testament in the life of Christ as well and symbol for the proclamation of truth in the end. Elijah spoke in his day. He was part of a showdown. We know that Jesus referred to John the Baptist as Elijah, but didn't take away from the fact that Malachi's prophecy in chapter 4, last book of the Old Testament, would yet have a future application. In other words, there will be an Elijah message at the end of time. There will come moments when the abundance that we know now will be replaced with scarcity. We saw with Elisha that it, it was a surveillance dynamic where the, the king of Aram surrounded that little town of Dothan. And it could have appeared that Elisha was in big, big trouble, except for one thing. The God of all knowledge sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and nothing was going to happen to Elisha that God the Father did not allow. We looked at Esther, and we saw political intrigue. We saw how the levers of power and influence could be worked behind the scenes. In all of these things, we saw God's deliverance. And last week, I talked about conspiracy theories and fear as a motivator of preparation. There are some who ought to be afraid in this moment. They've brought a human pride, a human arrogance, a human hubris. They've brought human preparation. They've made no preparation for the things that can't be seen, for the eternal issues, for the world to come. There is a group of people that might be listening to me for whom fear would be the natural, logical, and motivational step. But for those that have come to know Christ, the devil would like to make them afraid so that they're paralyzed and self-focused as we approach the end, which is the last thing God wants from his people. Those 12 spies that went from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the promised land in the book of Numbers during the time of the Exodus, 10 of them came back and they were unnerved by what they saw. Giants in the land. They went so far as to lie and say the land actually devoured its inhabitants, which was controverted by the fact that they brought back a, a cluster of grapes so large it was carried on a pole between two men. But two of those men came back, and they were convinced that the God had delivered them from the oppressive hand of the Egyptians could deliver them from the might of the Canaanites, Caleb and Joshua. We don't know the names of the other two men, but we know the names of Caleb and Joshua, who served the Lord with completeness of heart, the Scripture speaks to. Yes, the devil would like Christians at this moment in time to be self-focused and afraid and not focused on the completion of the gospel message, the commission, that Jesus gave to us. Prophetic lockdown. Take your Bibles this morning and open up to the book of Revelation. I want to show you that nothing has changed. In the book of Revelation chapter 13, we look at an old beast and a new beast. I want you to understand the nature of the old beast. The nature of the old beast was persecution, restriction of conscience, the inability for one to follow the dictates of their own heart, as led by the Holy Spirit. Religious dynamics, we see two women described in the book of Revelation, a pure woman and a prostitute. These two women represent churches, and these churches are warring at the end of time. Prophetic lockdown. I'm going to show you how in the early days of the Christian church with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there was this amazing battle between the church that was alive and pure and true and the church that had lost its way, compromised with the world, but held much power. Revelation chapter 13, talking about the beast. Verse 1, 
The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. His dragon gave him the power and throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because, they, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast? Who's able to wage war with him? He was given a mouth to speak arrogant and blasphemies, arrogance and blasphemy and authority to act for 42 months. He opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme the name of his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given him. All who dwell on the face of the earth shall worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. And if anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance and faith of the saints. I want to assure you this morning, without the time to spend uh, an illustrative study in the Word of God, is that this first beast actually represents an arm of the church, empowered with civil authority, refusing to allow people to live out their understanding of their relationship with God and conscience. It's about worship, as verse 8 says. It's about the fact that at the very end of time, the battle on the face of the planet is not going to be secular. It's not going to be geopolitical. It's going to be spiritual. Satan has claimed this little globe as his. He's wrested it from the hands of its rightful rulers, Adam and Eve and, and their descendants. And Jesus has come as a divine deliverer to restore to us the inheritance stolen away. And all throughout the history of earth, religious power and civic power have been combined to oppress people and keep them from the worship that is due God and that is in the hearts of his faithful ones to offer freely. But there's another beast, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. There's a new power on the scene, but it's every bit as much religious as the old. And what we see here in the book of Revelation chapter 13 is that before the emergence of some of the issues and the ideas in the Enlightenment, before the rising of the United States of America, the world was locked in a constant, a constant de devotion to those often kings who claimed to be gods and this idea of civic power and religious power separated is a new idea. Throughout the eons of earth's history, there has been this mandate that people worship as someone else tells them how to worship. But along comes this new beast who appears to have a completely different approach. He speaks at first like a lamb, but he changes his dialogue to that of a devil. 
And it's in the period of this time that I want to look this morning because nothing has changed. We've had a secular uh, reprieve, you might say, for a moment when everybody can think what they want to think about God and how they want to worship. But that time is coming to an end. The issues surrounding the elements of worship, the opportunity for America as this second beast who speaks at first in a lamb-like posture is, is about to ebb away. And what I want to show you from the past is what we can anticipate in the future. Nothing's changed. It's a spiritual battle. Last night, many of you tried to log on to an experience with It Is Written called Revelation, Hope Awakens. A lot of you weren't able to do that. There's a reason, because there's a spiritual battle going on. I have a text on my phone right here I want to read to you. It says, apparently we had an attack, like a proxy attack. Our tech guys are saying they've never seen such a malicious, organized attack. It was intended to take our site offline, a different kind of traffic smacking our site over and over again. It was a deliberate attack to take us down. It was more than 300,000 hits per second. I have the shivers thinking about it. I guess there's a reason we're praying. We go live again at 10 o'clock. I'm praying we can log on at that time. If you tried to watch this program last night and you couldn't get on, there's a reason. That's because the spiritual battle was playing out behind the scenes. And there, was, there are issues, there are identities which we may never know till the other side of that spiritual Jordan. But 300,000 hits per second on the It Is Written website was keeping all kinds of people from being able to tune in and watch as they so desired. The Bible tells us there's a time coming when we cannot buy or sell. You think a lockdown that limits your ability to go and buy paint or mulch is tough. Imagine the moment when you can walk in a store, but you can't do anything in the store. You can't walk out with what you came to get. Yes, this is just a little birth pang. This is just a little warm-up moment. The Bible tells us that what was is what will be. And this morning, I want to tell you it's good news that what was is what will be. I want to talk to you again about fear. I want to talk to you about the 12 apostles. Do you remember them? Oh yes, Peter, James, and John. But all of them on the moment of Christ's arrest did what? They all ran away. I want you to think for a minute why they ran away. All 12 of them had followed Jesus. They had listened to the sharp words of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had watched for the attempted trapping of Jesus. They had been rejected by the Samaritans in some of their villages. They had been made fun of. They had watched the masses walk away from Christ. Jesus would say to them, are you going to leave me too? Where would we go, they said. You have the words of life, amen? This same Jesus who had been warning them over and over again what was going to happen as it was if they couldn't see and they couldn't hear. I want to talk to all the Seventh-day Adventists right now that are watching. If you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, keep listening. I hope you'll become one. Not because a church in and of itself is exactly where God wants you to be, and yet there is an organized effort put forth by the remnant of God and those that are empowered by the Holy Spirit at the very end to win in this battle between the beast and those that follow the Lamb. All of those disciples had heard Jesus say, you're going to be offended because of me. Peter went so far as to say, 
I won't be offended. I'll die with you. But when push came to shove and the women in the courtyard were identifying him, he went farther and farther and making sure he was not identified with Jesus to the point to where the cock would crow them the second time and he will hear his voice echoing off the stones of the courtyard of the temple, I don't even know the man. And then lambasting the person who asked him with all kinds of expletives. When it was all said and done, he rushed out to the Garden of Gethsemane, fell down in the place where Jesus had been praying, and cried his eyes out himself, recognizing how little he knew of himself. Why were they all afraid? They were all afraid because they refused to let Jesus destroy the idols of their ideas, which kept them self-focused about their own greatness, their own comfort, their own convenience. There are plenty of Seventh-day Adventists listening to me this morning whose commitment to their own ideas is every bit as great as the 12 apostles. There are Seventh-day Adventists listening to me this morning whose focus on themselves will make them every bit as much afraid as the disciples were when Judas showed up with the mob. There are all kinds of Seventh-day Adventists who have found a life in a culture, a community of church-going whose walk with Christ is as steely and Teflon-like as the 12 who abandoned Jesus on that night. Fear was what reigned. But something happened along the way. There is an experience there as they see themselves like they never saw themselves before, as they see the love of God like they've never seen it before. They watch, some of them at a distance, all of them at a distance for sure, They watch as their master is abused, arrested, tried. And then they see him hanging on a cross. They go through a period of great duress. They're wondering about their own safety still. They're hiding out for fear that they'll be captured as well and maybe crucified. But on Sunday morning, the earth convulses. An angel appears at the tomb, rolls the stone away and says, Son of man, thy father calls thee. Out comes Jesus glorified. The women see it first. They tell the story. It's too good to be true. They believe they're delusional along some lines. Peter and John get to the tomb. John gets there first. They don't see what the women saw, but they do know the tomb is empty. Later that day, Jesus begins appearing. He appears to the 12. Some are doubting. Jesus shows himself to be very much alive. The old ideas are falling down and new structures of faith are being built up. This is what will have to happen for Seventh-day Adventists. Five, six, seven decades of affluent living, affection to the world, idol building, comfort making, convenience enjoying, pleasure seeking. Yes, God is calling Seventh-day Adventists back to a simple commitment to the beautiful knowledge and proclamation of a living, returning Christ. These men are with Jesus for several days. Then Jesus is taken up into heaven. He directs them to spend 10 days praying together, and during that period of time, deeper senses of self-awareness are upon them. Can you imagine James and John as they think about their ambitions to be at the left and right hand of Jesus? Can you imagine the group apologies that are made? Can you see the bonding of those 10 days waiting for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit? And then on that 10th day, a sound, the appearance 
of tongues of fire above these people. An amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The old structures, the old idols, the idols of prominence and position and power and wealth. Nothing new under the sun, friends. It's the same for us with slight nuances of difference. But our human nature is attracted to the same things. Those had to be torn down by Jesus. They had to be shown to be worthless in the eyes of heaven. And now with this readiness to receive the gift of gifts is poured out on these men. And the one who ran away, the one who denied he knew Jesus, stands up and preaches a sermon so bold that he arraigns before the bar, the heavenly tribunal, the bar of justice, those that took the life of his master. What he was afraid to do 50 days before, he's no longer afraid to do now. Something changed. They went from being fearful to having a holy boldness unmatched by any. And yet that holy boldness will be exceeded by those who receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the end of time. Now I want you to ask yourself a question about the book of Acts. When you read the book of Acts, what kind of emotional tag will you put on it? Is it a sad book? It is a hopeful book. Is it a book that brings you down? Is it a book that lifts you up? Is it positive? Is it negative in your mind? I want you to ask yourself that question because I'm about to take you on a brief survey of this book and I'm going to show you that more bad things happen to God's people in the book of Acts than any other book of the Bible. There is a repetition and intensity and a frequency in the book of Acts for persecution that you've probably noticed before, not noticed before. Why? Because the Acts of the Apostles is the story of one victory after another in the church. And yet what I want you to see before it's all said and done this morning is how much God's people were willing to stretch and grow and extend themselves and sometimes suffer in the name of Jesus. I want to think for a moment, though, about one apostle that wasn't a part of those three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. His name was Saul. Was Saul ever afraid? That's the question I want you to ask yourself. Saul was a bully. Saul had the power of Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin behind him. We know in Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to Damascus to take people prisoners and bring them back to Jerusalem. But was Saul ever afraid? I'm not going to take the time to look it up, but I want to assure you that when, when Paul who was now Paul by the time we get to the book of Acts chapter 18, when he went to Corinth, he had been so maligned and molested, so beat up and abused. He had been stoned. <laughs> he had been through all kinds of things to where Jesus will say to him in Acts chapter 18 verse 9, don't be afraid. I want to tell you there's no Christian who's going to be liberated from the battle with fear. But there will be no Christian who lingers where fear deepens. They will move towards faith. They will remember what's been done in the past. They will claim the promises. And they'll move on in following after Christ, as Paul did. And many converts came out of the port city of Corinth. Yes, Paul was good at striking fear into people's hearts. And then Paul was on the other side. He went from Saul to Paul. This morning, I want to talk to you about the lockdown that's the most evident in the book of Acts. What is that lockdown? It's prison time. What is it about prison that's so painful? At least in America, they don't torture you. They feed you. Most of your cells have at least some measure of comfort, although I've been in some 
uh, prisons that are really nothing more than a big brick box with a five-story cage inside of it with hundreds of cells. But at least in most prisons in America today, there's heating and there's cooling. So what it is about prison that is so absolutely terrible? It's separation. It's loneliness. It's a lack of freedom. Why would you take God's people, as we see in the story of Acts, and why throw them into jail? It's an attempt to punish, to distress, to discomfort. It's an effort at hardship to separate them from what it is you don't want them to be doing. You're cutting off their support. You're cutting off their communication. You're taking away the tenderness of being in the, in the arms of the one you love. But when we look at the book of Acts, we see prison after prison that the apostles are acquainted with. Yes, they were outside the favor of man. So let's just do a little survey, if you would. Take your Bible and open to the book of Acts. And let's look here, Acts chapter 4. How many times are the apostles thrown in jail? By the way, friends, HMS Richard Sr. used to say, nothing's going to get done until the preachers are thrown in jail. I suspect at some point in time in the future, should God give me the privilege of living, I should find myself inside one of these cells. I should hope myself to be worthy enough and faithful enough to be there. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are arrested. They laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Turn over to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. Go on to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We have Saul in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, putting people in jail. Acts 8, verse 3. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging men and women. He put them in prison. Acts chapter 9 talks about bringing them bound to Jerusalem. That's what his intent was when he went to Damascus. Go to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, looking at verse 1 through 19, which I will not read all of, but it says, at that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And it was during the days of unleavened bread. In Acts chapter 14, Paul is stoned in Lystra. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is beaten and thrown in jail. What I want you to understand is that the last third of the book of Acts is about Paul himself being incarcerated. You're not going to find Paul, aside from the fact that a few verses describe how long he was at Ephesus and how long he was at Corinth, you're going to find that the most common place for Paul to be was in jail, along with Peter, in the book of Acts. There's something about throwing somebody in jail that gives those who have power a little bit of relief from whatever it is they don't like that these people are doing. When we look at the experience of the apostles, we see that four times leading up to Peter's final arrest, he's in jail. The first night, it's he and John. 
He and John have been thrown in jail because of the healing of a man on the way into the temple. In this verse, for instance, they're told not to preach in the name of Jesus. They're told to stop their communicating and quit trying to lay the blame of Jesus at the feet of the religious organization. This beautiful and famous dialogue between Peter's recorded and the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts. Verse 9. If we are on trial today, Acts chapter 4, for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And verse 13 has to be one of the most beautiful commentaries on the transformation of these men from fearful to this holy boldness. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and unlearned men, they were amazed and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Listen, friends, do you desire the kind of confidence that would allow you to be a fruitful bough for Jesus, a fragrant flower for the gospel? Are you willing to let go of those things that constantly make you afraid? Are you willing to get a new paradigm, a new lens on your life where you're not looking so much about what people think about you? And you're more interested instead. It's not so much about what's in you or what you're doing. It's about a focus on Christ. It's about abandoning oneself to the provision of God. It's not that we make no provision for ourselves. But we let go of those things that tie us to earth and make us citizens of this dismal planet and give us instead a divine embassage, a citizenry in heaven. Something had transpired Peter, who had run away, Peter, who had had hidden out with the other 12 and others, was now the man who was proclaiming that Jesus was to whom all the prophecies of the Bible pointed. And it was amazing that they could tell that now he was speaking as one who had authority. He wasn't afraid. He did not fear the face of man. This is what God wants us to do. Now, I'm going to talk to you for a moment about What might stand in the way of you doing this? I'm going to look at two groups of people in the Adventist church. I want to talk about all of those that were raised in this Adventist faith. What a beautiful privilege you've had. And what a potential overarching liability rests above you. And then I want to talk also about those who weren't raised in this faith and who've had to make a decision, who've had to let go of things who've had to endure a measure of misunderstanding, of loneliness, of sacrifice, of sorrow. If you were raised in this church, you have a distinct advantage, at least it used to be. It's not so clearly distinct anymore. It used to be that if you were raised in a holiness movement, a conservative church, one that distinguished between the actions and the activities of the world and the actions and activities of those who proclaim Christ, it used to be that the culture of your heart and mind was protected from the appetites and the addictions of the age. That's not quite so true anymore. As a matter of fact, you can be raised in what was once a conservative, traditional Christian home, including Adventism, but not limited to Adventism. 
It could have been the Church of the Brethren or the Wesleyans or the Baptists or whatever. Places where there were lines drawn between what Christians did and what Christians didn't. You know, friends, our lifestyles don't save us. Jesus saves us. But our lifestyle decisions protect a saving relationship. And when we're careful with those barriers that would invade and destroy our love for Jesus, there's a protection to our appetites. If you were raised in a Christian home where Christ was present and the Holy Spirit was there, you were saved from many lifelong appetite battles that would plague you all the days of your life. Now, not completely because you're citizens of the earth. If you were raised outside of the church, you probably engaged in all kinds of things to find temporary relief and pleasure, which created mental appetites, which may dog you until the day you die. They're two very different things. But if you've had to give up a relationship, a spouse, favor of parents, a job, a career, an educational opportunity, if you have been threatened with your very life over the elements of your profession of Christ, there is a measure of boldness that you have having already crossed that part of the wilderness journey. There's something to be said about the power of the mingling dynamic of a church that's evangelistically on the move as it brings into its presence the preservative elements of of those who have come out of darkness into light. If you were never really swimming in the cesspool, if you were never really walking in the darkness, praise God. I wish in some ways my experience could be like that. But if you've never left anything behind for Jesus, you're at a huge disadvantage in some respects. Because what's prophesied in the Bible and clarified in the spirit of prophecy is that there's going to be a moment when there's a shaking for God's church and people who have resisted the Holy Spirit and weren't willing to let go of those things which were going to keep them citizens of this earth actually decide at some moment to let go of Jesus instead. In other words, there's a journey for all of us to face the experiences that strengthen us. Now, if you were raised in this church and you were a part of a church who was actively involved in reaching the lost, God was drawing you in those experiences out of your comfort zones into another arena where faith could grow. It doesn't have to be that you walk out of darkness and are rejected by your peer group or your family or have to face a new financial future. That's one way of making a journey in which Jesus becomes very dear and you know he's a living savior. But if you're inside a church and this church is committed to stretching itself and going farther than would be convenient, that's another way. If you're in a home where the same kind of thing happens. But God forbid you should be in a home. God forbid that you should be in a church where all you're interested in doing is making sure you can keep the lights on and the heat and air conditioning going and not be troubled too much. Because it's in that environment that we effectively get to the place where we say, we wish we would have died in Egypt. I want everybody to be thinking about what I'm saying because the journey out of fear into boldness is not an easy one. God would like to take us in incremental steps. They might be baby steps at first. But without following Jesus, whether it's out of darkness into light or whether it's out of 
discomfort into the new comfort of a living faith by reaching the lost. You could be outside the fold and come in. That's a journey of faith building. Or you could be inside the fold and bring somebody else in. That's a faith building journey. One of those two journeys has to be yours because without it, you'll just be focused on yourself just like we're the 12 apostles. And you'll be as afraid as they are when the spiritual crises come. Yes, Jesus is actually calling us to leave some things behind. We're not to be fellowshipping in the presence or virtually in the same places that the rest of the world fellowships. We're not to be watching the same things the rest of the world is watching. We're not to be spending our money, our time, which is really a trusted stewardship that God's given us. No, we're called to live distinct lives. We're called to come ye out and be ye separate, says the Lord. There's no concord between light and darkness, truth and Belial. Our lives are to be distinctly different, calling people out of darkness. And perhaps you might be listening to me right now and you're someone God is taking out of darkness. But the way that God takes you from being fearful and afraid is to engage you in an encounter with him or to use you to engage somebody else. Yes, Peter had become a different man. He was a man for which the Jewish establishment was greatly afraid of. Peter was no longer worried about what was going to happen to him, but he was concerned about a nation that had rejected Jesus. When we look at Peter's journey, we see that not only is he put in prison, but we see in Acts chapter 5 that many of the apostles were put in prison. But I want to look specifically at Peter's encounter much deeper into the experience of prison life. This is the fourth encounter potentially for Peter in a prison. Acts chapter 12. Turn there with me. I've read the first four verses already. James has been beheaded. It's a politically expedient thing for Herod to do because the religious establishment is clearly not a secular society. It's a very religious society. Uh, Judaism had reigned in the minds of the people of that day, and they did not like this new sect, which was called the Way. Verse 5, Acts chapter 12, Peter was kept in prison. They were waiting till after the Passover, lest there be some kind of uproar. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard... They came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to the street, and immediately the angel departed from him. There's a few things I want to make sure we understand about this story. Number one, it's not the first time that God's preachers had been let out of jail by angels. They've been told not to preach in the temple. They've been thrown in jail. During the night, God lets them out, and he says, now go stand in the temple and preach the words of this life. When they convene as a Sanhedrin the next morning, 
They're talking about what they're going to do. They send to the jail to get the men. The men aren't there, but somebody brings the message. They're back in the temple preaching again. God intervenes. A wise Jewish leader by the name of Gamaliel says, you better be careful. What I want you to know is that when Peter comes to this moment in time, he understands distinctly two things. That if God wants him out of this prison, he can get him out, no problem. And the other thing he understands is that his life has been hidden in Christ, and if his experience as a preacher of righteousness is over, it's okay. He'd surrendered his dreams about becoming great in the church. He had surrendered his dreams about a a future of great happiness and circumstantial peace. He had surrendered everything to the hands that were pierced for him, and he was sleeping that night in prison because he knew whom he believed and knew he was able to keep that which he had committed to him unto that day. Nobody will be in jail at the end of time except those that God allows to walk through those doors and hears their slam behind them. Nobody will be there except God allows them to go, but nobody will stay there unless Jesus wants them to stay. It's important for us to understand that Christ wants to draw so near to us that when we're separated from everybody else, we know that he draws near to bless our soul in special ways. Peter was not there alone. Four soldiers were with him. Herod knew about these amazing escapes. He didn't attribute it to an angel. But there was a soldier chained to the right hand, a soldier chained to the left, and soldiers outside the doors. When God shows up, it's nothing for the angels to unshackle him. It's nothing for the angels to suppress the audio waves. It's nothing for the angels to be divine locksmiths. It's nothing for the angels to take him by the hand and put him out into the street. But I want you to know something else. Some of the miracles that are recorded in the Bible aren't written down for us to know about. What do you mean, preacher? What I mean is this, is that what was going on in the home where Rhoda, the servant, where Peter will end up and knock on the door, we don't know what kind of miracles were going on inside the hearts of the believers who were bound up together in what appears to be an all-night prayer service so that the next morning their beloved pastor would not die. That quote in the bulletin, it says, while upon various pretexts the execution of Peter was being delayed until after the Passover, the members of the church had time for deep searching of heart and earnest prayer. They prayed without ceasing for Peter, for they felt that he could not be spared from the cause. They realized that they had reached a place. Listen to this word, these words, last sentence, where without the special help of God, the church of Christ would be destroyed. Listen, friends, why do you read the book of Acts and come away encouraged? Because there's a future for the church to succeed like it's never succeeded before. But it's going to be built around dynamics that are the closeness of heart, mind, and soul of the members and the the symphonic petitioning to heaven for divine intervention. Yes, there were miracles going on in many homes around Jerusalem because the brothers and the sisters were together praying. Something motivated them enough that they said, we need his deliverance more than we need sleep. There's other things that are going on behind the scenes that you can't see. I'm going to read you a little bit of a text that someone sent me yesterday. I'm not going to identify who sent it to me. But I want to tell you something. 
it's likely that Peter was married. We know that at one time he was because he had a mother-in-law. That means if there's a wife on the scene still, she's going through, through great agony of soul because this man that she loves so much is about to meet his death. You've never read anything about Mrs. Peter in the Bible. But in heaven, you're going to get to hear her story. But I, I had somebody yesterday write to me, and what they shared was so, so encouraging. I'm going to do this in a generic way. This person writes, and they say, I have questions. They wondered why. Why did a small group of Seventh-day Adventists from the village church go all the way down to El Salvador only to be able to stay there a few days and come home? This person says, I was wondering about this. It happens to be a woman. And when they, when they got to thinking about it, you know, it was something that I suspect they talked with God about. But then they picked up the church newsletter, got it offline yesterday. She says, I wondered why he allowed the earlier group, especially with one older person, to get out there only to have to come back. Today, I read in the newsletter why. He wanted food available to those who live there. I mean, I am sitting here literally crying because I'm so grateful for this faith-affirming moment. I may not seem, it may not seem like a big deal, but we don't always get to know the why for things. I'm so grateful to have this, quote, in real time lesson, you know? And then this person goes on to explain a family situation in which someone they love is in a very risky relationship relative to this disease that's going around. And the way they end this text is basically saying that God is beginning to take away the things inside of me that would leave me in a posture of perpetual fear. Not this person's words, my summary. But what was in the text was a statement that God is showing me that he's faithful and he has a reason for what he does. Friends, without God's church stepping out of its comfort zones and going out to do things where we can't see A to Z, we cannot connect all the dots. We're not going to have chapters where God comes back around and he says, yeah, if that group wouldn't have gone down there and been down there for three or four days, we'd have people who might be close to going hungry right now. But the thousands of dollars that were spent by this church in anticipation of 200 people coming have been feeding dozens of people for weeks now. But the bigger issue is that somebody is recognizing a faithful father. What about Mrs. Peter? Do you not think she was called to maybe greater duress? She might have been awake praying for her husband. He was sleeping. Praise the Lord. Peter was no longer afraid to stand up and be counted. And Peter was no longer afraid to face death. I want to assure you, friends, when God pours out his spirit, and by the way, as we learned last week, let's keep our vessels upright and seeking the spirit day by day. Let's not come to these moments afraid. But let's not hang on to the things that Jesus says to leave behind. God can deliver his people, but sometimes the larger deliverance is the storyline that's told by those that are sacrificing and those that are suffering. 
Now let's think for just a moment. I have not very much time left, but I want to think for just a moment about Paul. When you look at Paul's life, he went to Cyprus. He went to Antioch. When he was in Antioch, persecution drove him out of the city. In Iconium, the Jews tried to stone him. In Thyatira, he got in trouble for casting a demon out of a girl. In Thessalonica, there was a mob that was arranged against him. In Berea, he had a brief respite. But what I want you to understand is that everywhere he went, he had the same modus operandi. He'd go into the synagogue, he'd start preaching about Jesus. You'd think after one, two, or three of these moments, he'd say, you know, this is kind of a rough experience. I think I'm just going to let off for a while. He goes down to Athens. It doesn't appear that he interacts with any Jews. He comes to Corinth. I've already referenced this. God says, don't be afraid. Nobody's going to hurt you. In Ephesus, there's another riot. And finally, when he goes back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, he's told to make a Nazarite vow and he's seized in the temple. Bad advice from people who are jealous and insecure who actually follow Jesus. Yes, it's a part of the Bible story, not a very good one. What I want you to understand is that when God gives you a sense of his presence and you let go of those things that are holding you back and focused around your own comfort and convenience and pleasure... There's a great measure of confidence that grows in your soul. There's a great amount of wisdom knowing when to speak up and when to be quiet. But I want to assure you, God is looking to give us the kind of confidence that will make us willing to wander into difficult situations knowing it's only God's deliverance that's going to get us out. Paul and Silas, beaten with rods. They've done nothing wrong. Thrown in jail. And that night... They are singing and praying. It's the middle of the night and everybody is listening. And what happens? An angel comes down, grabs onto the corner of the building and begins shaking it. Now I want you to think about this. Three things happen. The stocks that are holding Paul and Silas pop open. The chains that are on their wrists and their ankles are opened up. And the doors to the cells of every prisoner in that little dark dungeon-like abode pop off. Three things happen. In the darkness, the jailer realizes in some level what's happened, and he's ready to take his own life, and Paul calls out, don't do it. In the moment, a man's life is saved. A family is saved. Paul who could have thought only of his own needs, is there in a moment knowing Jesus allowed him to walk into that prison to be unjustly beaten. And Paul is bringing souls to Christ in the most difficult places. Sounds a bit like Joseph in the land of Egypt. When Jeremiah was preaching in the days of the Old Testament, he was thrown in prison, thrown in a pit. But I was thinking as I was reflecting on this message, Jesus never went to jail. He was arrested. And then I thought to myself, is that really true? That Jesus never went to jail. You know, there are certain chains that no human locksmith can open. The chains of death. Jesus' entire experience on this earth was a a journey of limitation, a restriction of freedom. He did not exercise his omnipotence. 
He did not exercise his omniscience being everywhere. He did not exercise his omniscience knowing all things. He was led by his Father. He was informed by the Spirit. He exercised in the power of the provision of the other two members of the Godhead. Jesus' life on this planet was a dark place to dwell. The angels which excel in light were veiled from so many faces. They were not there to praise and honor Jesus. Jesus, in those last moments in the dark hours of Gethsemane, was pleading for his church, pleading for himself, pleading for the world. Jesus said, Jesus said, not what I will, but you will. Jesus goes forward into the betrayal, the denial, the arrest, the beating, the abuse, the kangaroo court. Jesus goes all the way to Golgotha. And there Jesus is robbed of all semblance of dignity, even his clothes are removed. He's splayed out on a cross and pinned to the wood. And there Jesus, languishing for six hours, three of them in darkness, three of them not, anticipates going into the dungeon of death and being chained by the shackles of Satan of which he had no part. Jesus walked into the dungeon of death so that you and I could walk out into the palaces of light. Jesus walked into the arms of evil and an eternal loss so that we could walk into the arms of his heavenly Father and eternal gain. Jesus made the journey into the darkest dungeon that has ever existed so that you and I could simply fall asleep like Peter and be woken up by the great trumpet call of God. The day is coming in which someone, somehow, is going to grab onto this earth and he's going to shake it. And the foundations of the world are going to be moved. And all of the shackles of death are going to pop off the tombs of the faithful. Anyone in the prison house of death is going to be liberated and called to the palaces of light. In the meantime, I want you to know something. Not all prisons are created equal. There are places on the face of the planet where you would never want to be. And then there are places on the planet in some more affluent arrangements for those who have committed what we'll call white-collar crimes that hardly resemble prisons. Friends, we need to be careful because at this very moment in time, the devil would like to make this prison that we're in look like a palace and us not want to leave it behind. You see... There's a great prophetic showdown coming. There's going to be this religious battle, and it's going to appear to be treasonous for us to follow the simple word of God and the convictions of the Bible. But God is calling us now in the present to recognize that anywhere with Jesus, we can safely go. To recognize that his presence will ravish the soul, that he will bring great comfort, peace, and hope, that he'll bring light out of darkness, and it'll speak comfort to our lonely persons. Yes, friends, God's going to pour out His Holy Spirit. The church is going to win again. The church is not winning right now. The church needs to be called back to faithfulness. They need to let go of the things that make them afraid and impotent in a world of the unseen. God's calling us to have confidence in Jesus, to not be afraid. The day is coming in which He's going to liberate the whole world, and He needs an advanced force to go before Him.
He needs there to be a wake-up call that says redemption draws nigh. He wants all people, as we looked at last week, to understand they can avoid the coming judgments. They can be safe under the banner that's love. Friends, I'm calling my church, the Village Church, and anyone else listening to me here today to understand the devil would like to chain us with desire to the things God has provided as if they are good enough or better than the things he desires to give. May God help each one of us as we anticipate this new week to let God identify what needs to be left behind so that we can go from becoming fearful to faithful. If we were raised in this church, may we understand there are others that are be called in, which will take us from the discomfort of self-focus and fear to the comfort of faith and spiritual victory. And if you were raised outside this church, may God exercise your leadership ability to speak confidence and nerve and stiffness into the backbone of a church whose spiritual obligations, privileges, and responsibilities are greater than ever any church that's ever lived on the face of the planet. May God help us all. Yes, there's a lockdown coming that'll make this one look like nothing. And when that moment comes, it'll be because the gospel is broken wide open and the church is victorious and moving on triumph after triumph. God forbid we'd be left behind. God forbid we'd choose what's here instead of what's coming. God forbid we wouldn't be the vessels to be used. May God help us as we anticipate a future in which the church moves from victory to victory and the presence of Christ goes with us everywhere we go. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.